I have to be honest. Yes, I've had some success, but timing played such an important part. I spent 34 years as an entrepreneur. I founded, built, and sold two communication agencies and co-founded a research firm. In our peak years, we employed over 100 people. Our culture was creative, collaborative, and compassionate. Our diversity was our strength in numbers. We paid people for ability, regardless of gender, and I preferred street smart and intuitive and curiosity over degrees. We were a family. We weren't perfect, but whose family is? And yes, talent came and went, but when we were at our best, we attracted and retained some of the best. And what was interesting was longevity. I had the honor of working alongside people for over 30 years and across two agencies. I watched their kids grow up. So why do I credit timing as everything? During my time, everyone came to work and had a place. Working from home was a rarity for a few and didn't exist for most. And I could tell when things were good just by walking around and feeling and sensing the pulse of the business. And we got to celebrate our wins by being together. I'm not cut out to lead today. I don't think our culture could exist within these dynamics of work from home or hybrid and where people are assigned a new space each day versus setting up your home away from home. And factor in AI, which arrives, it seems like yesterday, but seems highly effective in eroding, even eradicating the value and contributions of human thinking, feeling, and doing. What does it take to be an exceptional leader today, to be an exceptional employer, to be an exceptional employee? Where do young people learn critical thinking and collaboration and teamwork? Where do they get mentored, learn through their mistakes? Where are they inspired to reach for more? These essential questions must be answered to help employers, employees, and even those considering what educational path to follow, where to move next on this chessboard of life. I asked around to see who could answer some of these questions. And time and time again, the name Dr. Georgette Zanati surfaced, and for good reason. Imagine having the power to change someone's life through a single act. Now imagine the impact of that one act on that person, that person's life, the family, the network. That is what I call the power of one. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Georgette Sadati is a changemaker, advocate, commentator, author, speaker, and professor, and I'm not done. Her work focuses on empowering individuals and organizations to navigate rapidly changing landscapes, help make sense of the future of work. She's an electrifying speaker, has graced the TED stages more than once, entrepreneur, founder of Woo, Women Helping Empower Women, and a Forbes contributor. And I am thrilled she's joining me today on Chatter That Matters. Dr. Georgette Zanati, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for that introduction. But I am going to say I don't actually agree with everything that you said. Can I speak uh, with that? <laughs> uh, let, let's just completely derail the interview right here and right now. Go ahead. So first, I'll tell you where I agree. I do agree that I think being street smart, having intuition, curiosity is much more important than, a, than degrees. And I really do believe it's important to double down on potential. But you did say that, you know, how you led was, is different than it is today and you don't think that you would be a great leader and I highly disagree with that and I'll tell you why. 
There is something called the Gamba Walk that this is uh, very popular in Japan where leaders would walk on the floor, you know, and, and look for different things. So the idea was to kind of go and see what was happening, talk to the people, get a sense of the, you know, the, the pulse of what's happening and then show respect. And this is really where innovation happens. So what you described in terms of how you led and how you've led in the past is exactly the kind of leadership we are looking for. So I actually think the future, future of leadership is very much aligned around that. And the other thing that I know about you is you have a lot of compassion, understanding you're a great listener. And those are things that we look for in leaders today. We don't want command and control. We want all of the things that you have. So I actually think you'd be an exceptional leader and employer. Anytime you want to disrupt my questions with that kind of commentary, <laughs> of course, I'm going to keep it in the show and I won't edit it out. But my point was, it's because people aren't all together. You know, my feel was I could walk in and I know when things were right or wrong, when some Somebody needed a hand on a shoulder. Somebody wanted to take you on because something was bothering him because they were there. You could look at their eyes, almost feel their heart. You could see that just their body language. And it's a lot harder, I think, because today it's kind of we're shuffling this deck. Some people are in, some people aren't, and they don't even have their own space. You know, this concept of hoteling when you walk in and you sort of book a cubicle, I think is different than the person that would have their pictures of their cats as part of defining who they are. I think we've seen a lot of change in the workplace. And, you you know, during COVID, everyone was at home and that was disruptive. Some people really liked it. Some people didn't like it. And some people actually found it very, very traumatizing in the sense that they lost that human connection. I mean, why do we go into work? We do work, but, you know, we want purpose, but we want connection. So this is why you're seeing a lot of companies going back to a hybrid type of model, because this actually gives you that little bit of connection that you're looking for. And you can create innovation like if I think about some of the most successful companies and things, they're on the ground. People are exchanging ideas. They're walking down the hall. They're saying, hey, what about this? What about that? And you're getting that level of engagement that you just can't do. So I do think, you know, there is a little bit of that. But I also think the younger workforce in some ways are so used to being on their phones and having that bit of a distance. I do think if you want to network and all of that, it all goes back to being in front of people, kind of like how we were doing it. You can't do, you can't build relationships by texting, emailing, and just seeing people in a box. So I got two questions. First is, did I give my niece the right advice? She came to me, she said, I can't believe it. My organization's, uh, it's going to stay hybrid. We only have to go in two days a week. What do you think? And I said, what I think is you should go in five days a week because all the people you're competing with are going to be at home. You could probably get senior people to mentor you. You could volunteer to do additional things. They're going to know who you are and they're going to know how much you care about your the company. And to me, that's a massive advantage because not everybody's on the racetrack at the same time. Was that good advice or bad advice? I actually think that's actually sound advice. My own children, you know, work in an organization. When my daughter started, it was all online. Uh, then it was a couple of days a week. And now she goes in almost every day and works one day from home. Now she hates the commute. But I would agree with you, though, that she is on people's radar a bit more because she's in the office, she's doing things. And if you are in more than others, it's good. If you're able to do the commute, I think, Tony, what's holding a lot of people back, especially younger people, they don't want to go back and forth. It's the expense. It's the time wasted. I'm not against people working from home one or two days a week. My problem is because it becomes so efficient, we need a much smaller workspace. We almost want to bring people in at different times. So it's not like everybody's going to be home on a Friday and we're going to be together 
Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It seems to be, you know, hybrid culture. There's a lot more flexibility. And I just worry that it's hard to create culture. And I guess the second question is, what does a leader or a company have to do today to make themselves so magnetic that people go, despite the commute, despite the hassle, the inconveniences, the fact that I can't work in casual wear, it's still worth my time. It's time well spent to be in the office. Successful companies, if they really want to create the culture that you were talking about, if people are in five days a week, or even if they're in a couple of days, what are you doing with them when they're in? So the question I have for a lot of companies is, okay, people come in, so I'm working in my cubby and I'm going back. So you saw me, I've shown up. That is not going to create, you know, new ideas. That is not going to create a great culture. That is not going to create commitment to your organization. That is not going to create your purpose. But when they are there, if there are projects people are working on, if there's ways that you're creating that level of connection when, when they are attending two or three days a week and, and making, you know, getting them to focus on things and putting some strategies into place, then you are going to reinforce the culture you're looking for. So what do magnificent companies, I think is that what you call them, can actually do? Magnetic. Magnetic. But they can be magnetic. Magnificent, magnificently magnetic companies. <laughs> they sure can. So, you know, I think part of that really goes back to the sense of what we call belonging. So everybody wants to go to work when they feel like they're heard, they show up, they're belonging. You know, people say, come in and they say, Tony, how are you? How's the family? What did you do this weekend? All that kind of stuff. Part of belonging is actually making people feel that, that you know who they are and what they do. So do, are we creating a, a place that is like that for folks? I talk about the five Ps, right? People, purpose planet, profit, and pivot. So people first, if people are not connected to the organization, that's problematic. Do you have a purpose? What is that purpose? And is that purpose making widgets? Or is that purpose changing the world, changing their narrative? Am I going in every day and making life better for somebody? Does that align with my own values? If you've got that, you're, like, you're knocking it out of the park because like, that's why I want to show up every day. I feel that I'm valued. And then that's the other part of belonging. Do I feel like am I valued? Did my boss say thank you? Just little things like that. You know, so all of these things make a difference. And if the company, do we allow for creativity and pivoting when we need to? So the company can grow. And does my voice matter in that? So if I came up to Tony, the CEO, and said, have we thought about this? Can we consider it? Is it brushed aside or is there a consideration of that? Maybe she's seeing something we're not seeing. I want to continue to unpack this because this is the answers that I'm looking for. But before we get to you and your PhD, I just want to talk a little bit about how this all happened for you because you grew up just outside of Tel Aviv. You moved to Oshawa at age five. So I'm curious why you left one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And not to say Oshawa isn't a beautiful city, but what was what was the inspiration and motivation for your parents coming to Canada? When I think about what's happening in the Middle East right now, I mean, I remember the sirens uh, and having to go into bomb shelters and soldiers driving and saying, turn off the lights and... I don't remember how long we'd be there, but, you know, I remember my parents always thinking like, what are we going to find when we come out? So I think for my, my dad, especially, it was really important for him to think about the future for his children and why it mattered. And so he, I think he made that difficult decision for my mom. It was a lot harder. All of her family's there. Like she has like hundreds and hundreds of like cousins. And so for her, it was coming here and, you know, not speaking the language. We none of us spoke the language. And so that was a challenge. But I think for him, it was trying to give us a better, you know, a better future. Did he have to compromise in terms of his stature and what he did when he was over in Israel versus what he got to do to earn a living in Canada? 
when I look back, I mean, I don't know that I knew that when I was younger, but we were, I'm going to say upper middle class. Like my dad had a garage with his brother and another partner and they, you know, did quite well. So coming here, that just wasn't happening. You know, he worked for people and I think it was a little bit harder for him. Um, and so that I think was a bit of a challenge. And I think for my mom as well. I mean, you know, you have a community there. It's a smaller place to live. You know, our neighbors, you know, we had Muslim neighbors, Jewish neighbors, Christian neighbors, like everybody got, you know, had, we had a network, people socialized all the time. When you come to Oshawa where, you know, you're the other and it isn't as many, we didn't have, there were no people like us, it was a little bit harder for my mom, for sure. And I think my dad too, but he went to work every day. So he was able to kind of go out and, and have a sense of purpose. I think for her, it was a little bit harder. She was a stay at home and there wasn't a lot of people that spoke the language and, and did stuff. I have to believe that today we'd be much more sensitive to mental health that must have manifested from suddenly being alone, away from hundreds of your cousins, long distances and expensive and just being feeling completely disconnected. And, you know, the only person you have some commonality besides your kids that might be driving you crazy all day is when your husband's coming home and he's not necessarily feeling walking with the same straight back shoulders as he did because he's, he's gone from being an entrepreneur to, a, to an employee. So it must have been really stressful for them. You know, they never actually made us feel that way. So, you know, it wasn't, you know, we came, we were okay at the beginning, but I think for her it was like, I remember my dad would get upset when she played, like he played, you know, she'd, he'd have like his VHS tapes, you know, in the car and she'd start crying and he'd get upset because she's thinking about, you know, all our family back home. And I think the life she had and her network of friends. So her life completely changed. You were the first to really go to college and you just didn't go to college. I mean, Henley, you were over in England, Harvard. I mean, some major institutions. What gave you this incredible appetite for education? Yeah, you know, I, so I've always been the, like a little bit of a geek. I like learning. So, you know, if I tell you when my, when my sisters, like we're following boy bands and, you know, Michael Jackson, I have like a little album cut out of the King Tut exhibition from, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And the Chinese dynasty, I was like, you know, this is where my brain was going. I also truly believed that education was going to be the key to giving me some empowerment. You know, if I had an education, I could have my own income. I wasn't going to be able to rely on anybody. I was going to be okay. I could take care of myself. I could even take care of my parents if I needed to. I really like learning. And so it was a few years later that somebody encouraged me to go back and do another degree. And I did the MBA. And then I thought, oh, you know, I really want to, I should do a doctorate. (laughs) But then I couldn't do the doctorate without another master's of science. I had to do the master's of science to get into the doctorate. And and so it just was one thing after the other. But I, I loved it. And I was definitely a better student in my older age than I was when I was younger. So you also talked about being the first in the trailblazer. I mean, it comes with an element of pride, but it also comes with another element because you're blazing a trail others haven't. So was there any issues with that in terms of how your family thought of you or people around you saying enough with the degrees, go out and get a job? (laughs) So, you know, when I, when I first did my my first degree, my undergrad, my parents, you know, I'm going to say it wasn't, they weren't supportive. They were definitely scared. Right. You know, first to go to university, all of these things. But after year one, they were incredibly proud. I will say to you that when I went back and did other degrees, I did get, you know, people saying, you know, when's it going to be enough? And, you know, what about your family? And I thought, well, you know, I, I take care of my family. This is why I do the work that I do. But it was, you know, and I've always been when I get these questions of like, when's it going to be enough? I think, do people ask Tony Chapman, when is it going to be enough, Tony? 
or are we like, hey, way to go? That doesn't mean everybody, but there are people that I think I get a little bit more of that as a, as a woman. When's it going to be enough? When are you going to be satisfied? You know, when will it end versus, you know, way to go? <laughs> How much did that inspire you? Because I I saw, you know, even though you talk about that you never fit in, which I was shocked because I saw your TED Talks and you've just got such swagger and confidence on stage and you know that you're commanding the audience, but saying, you know, you never really fit in. How much of that was you thinking that way just to get yourself to up your game? That The more people said, when is it going to be enough? You said, well, I want to do more. Was this part of your sort of internal motivation or did you really feel that? That way that you were sort of the a bit of an odd duck if I think about my high school days I was definitely a bit of an odd duck like my parents were very strict I wasn't allowed to go do certain things so and you know as you grew up it's you know I didn't fit into like the Jordache jeans I'm really dating myself now but if anyone knows who those are <laughs> it's like so for me it was sort of deciding you know who am I at the end of the day because you know I, I Asha wasn't exactly diverse growing up I decided that, you know, I was smart. I think I could be a very nice, kind person. I was really good at figuring out solutions to problems. And that was really what I was going to lean into in terms of my identity. And that's how I identified myself. I can do anything. And that, those kind of skill sets don't have an expiration date. They're, you know, they're always going to be in demand. And that's really how I sort of survived a little bit. And, And that's the story I told myself. So, you know, if people sort of didn't think, you know, they thought I was a bit of a nut duck. Well, it was a little bit of, you know, the Kramer, uh, if you will. And recognizing that I saw the world different and that I was a little bit different, I decided to think, okay, that's a bonus. Why do I have to like walk to the beat of everybody else's drum? Why not me? Where'd you get that self-esteem? I worked on the Dove brand for eight years. It broke my heart when they talked about their first study that these young girls are just singing. The, their life is unfolding the most magical way. And then as they hit puberty, they might get a few pimples and they suddenly become introverted and huddled in a corner because they can't compete or compare with all these false beauty stereotypes. What advice can you give other women, in fact, every human being that no matter how you think you might be judged inside you, you've got enough evidence to prove you can be who you want to be? Okay. So, you know, I wore glasses, didn't wear makeup. I was who I was. And so for me, it was more about if I, if you know who you are and what you bring to the table, then that was going to be, you know, and, and I, and I was, when I channeled that, I, people, it didn't matter. I got jobs. I, I would just put myself out there. The other part of it is what's the alternative, Tony? Is the alternative to sit there and cry or feel sorry for myself? I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to show the world how great I am. And if you can't see that, boy, are you ever missing out? This <laughs> was my mentality. And so I was going to keep raising the bar for myself every opportunity that I had. And when it worked, it was like, well, then why not me? I can do it. And so I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And when I, you know, coach people and I work with young women and I always get the, I don't know if I can. And I'm like, do you see what I see? Because when I look at them, I can just see so much potential. I can see. So when I sit there and they're like, yeah, but they're telling me all the reasons they can't. And I can give you a million reasons why you can, because I can see it. And so it's getting them to rethink what they know about themselves. Do you think that people need that Yoda? All you had was a mirror to look into. So you managed to navigate that. But for most of the people out there, and I'm looking at this sort of mental health crisis with youth, 
Where can they go to look to find someone that says, I'm going to give you a hand up, not a handout, not a pat on the shoulder saying, it's okay. I'm going to get you to pull yourself up. And when you do, you're going to see a side of you that you haven't seen ever before. So I think mentorship is really important. So finding someone who can help you do that. So, you know, one of the reasons I created the nonprofit that I have, Women Helping Empower Women, was for that that reason. I wanted to create a space where we could provide those kinds of things. So, you know, originally when I created it, I honestly thought I'm going to get like 18 to 20-year-olds or 25-year-olds. And our demographic in that organization is 18 to 60 something. They're all over. And one of the the common themes is the lack of confidence. We don't know how to network up. We don't know how to navigate. You know, we're afraid to ask for what we deserve. And so I work with a lot of women on, you know, helping them navigate those conversations in a way where they're not abrasive, but confident, you know, and, and, you know, I'm not going to say aggressive because I think that sort of, you know, people, but assertive in a way that it owns their space. So there's a little bit of that. The other part of it is, Having been there and sort of coming in as an immigrant, not knowing a word of English, putting myself through school, figuring it out. So, you know, I can, my own shared experiences, if, if you have people who can help you, you've got so much more. So if I'm able to do it, I can help you do it. And I also feel that if you are an executive or you're a person in a leadership position, it is your privilege and duty to help other people. It, it is, you know, it's not just like I'm a CEO or I'm a senior. You should be helping other people. You have to find the time and carve that out. That is the only way we're going to grow the next sort of leaders of, of Canada and tomorrow. I've interviewed a, a number of people and meeting you just now, you are electric, you're empowering. I could see how you would inspire young people. But I also see that the vast majority of Canadians, especially young people, feel like they're running in cement, wet cement. I mean, constant bombardment and negativity. Uh, from what I understand, you know, that why should I bother? The planet's going to burn up. There'll be a world war. AI is going to take away my job. Uh, I can't compete with social media. I mean, there's some big headwinds and coming at it. Anything you can offer it. I don't mean to completely turn this into a, about youth, but what can you offer them? What advice can you give to a parent to have one of their kids that looks like they're just dropping out or wandering away to invite them back into a, a path in life? It's hard. Right now, like our environment is not, is challenging, right? You're talking about AI taking workplaces. The world is changing constantly. We definitely need to think about how we regulate AI for sure. Uh, so early on rather than much later, because there's, you know, I, I do agree it's concerning and it's disruptive. And I don't think necessarily it always in the best sense. That being said, when we think about our use, part of thinking about what we need to do is where do we, you know, how do we give them the tools to be really creative, to be entrepreneurial, to kind of see potential? I don't think our school systems are as good as they could be or should be, to be honest with you. I don't think we prepare them for the way that, that they need to be prepared. But I think it is important for us to think about how we provide the resources to them. So I, I think about my own kids and although I can coach them, they don't necessarily want me. So who can I put them in front of that can get them to sort of see things? How do I get them involved in the community? So my kids do a lot of community work and I recommend people do that. Why? Well, other than it feels good, you're connecting, you're seeing, you're having purpose, you're aligning, you're like trying out different skill sets. The other part of it is we do have conversations. You know, we have really interesting conversations sometimes at our dinner table where we may agree to disagree, but getting them to start thinking critically because they're going to need those skills when they go into the workplace or going for a job interview and somebody just stumps you. And so how do you, you know, it's important for us to think about how we navigate the tools. Now, why are all those important? Well, they are going to build your sense of self. 
your sense of purpose and your confidence. And I think when you have some of those things, it also builds your resilience and allows you to, you know, kind of look at the world a little differently. And your children, how many children do you have? Three, girl, boy, boy. It's interesting because you do so much work championing women and marginalized communities. I mean, you're renowned for some of the work that you're doing. As a father of two daughters, I totally understand the need to level the playing field. So this isn't about challenging the fact that we've been talking about gender equality, gender pay, seats at the table for 20 years, and and it's been mostly rhetoric, not a lot of reality. So I understand that. But what about your two boys? You know, I prefer to think of them as part of the solution rather than part of the problem. You know, for example, a few years back when my, my middle boy was in high school and they were celebrating International Women's Day and the teacher passed around a hat and everybody had to put something in about, you know, how we want to make the more, the world more equitable. My son, and unbeknownst to me, had written, you know, the world would be better when women stop, you know, start making the same as a man, dollar for man rather than 78 cents to a male dollar. So of course the teacher is opening all of these wonderful things and then says, that's a very specific statistic. Like, who wrote that? <laughs> of course, I was doing training last week and I had a question. Somebody said to me, well, you know, white men are becoming extinct, don't you think? And what about us losing our place of privilege and kind of losing spots, whether it's at the board table or whatever? And I said, why does it have to be a zero-sum game? So why does it that, you know, we have 12 members on a board, you have to come off so I can get on. Why don't we rethink that model and say, maybe it needs to be a slightly bigger board. Maybe we need to think about the strategy where the organization's going. Maybe we need to rethink what it is that we're doing and how we're doing it so we're a bit more inclusive and there's room for everybody. I support what you're championing. There's no denying statistics that you have more diversity in your culture. You have more women leaders in your organization you're going to be more profitable. You're going to have a higher purpose. You're going to have a, a better culture. We, we know that. Everybody knows that. But there's a lot of people resisting to change because what got them there is not that. So I understand the need for change. But I want to come back to your son again because I want you to take this personally. Your son gets involved in an organization. This is a progressive organization. And instead of talking about these changes, they're going to make these changes. And they're going to do whatever they can to populate their executive ranks with more women because for the last four 40 years, it's been embarrassing how few I have a seat at the table. But your son comes up for a job promotion against someone else, and he's the better candidate. You know he's the better candidate because you've taught him to be have community. You've taught him about his values. You've taught him to care. You've taught him to be empathetic. You've done everything you can because you're, you're a super coach. You're a super mom. But he doesn't get the job. I think we've got to find a way to reconcile the need for change and the fact that this also get an impact, impact individual lives. If that's an unfair question to you, because I'm making you also wear a hat of a mother, don't answer it. But I deeply care that there's so many young males dropping out. One in four males are dropping out of high school in marginalized communities. To me, that's just not good for anyone. No, I, listen, I don't disagree. And I'm also going to say when we talk about the equity piece, if we focus on merit, there isn't a shortage of talent when it comes to merit. It's just that we know there's institutional bias. And so, you know, when people sometimes will say, you know, we need to get this number. And, you know, there's arguments, I'm just going to say on both sides, of whether we need to have a quota or whether we should just focus on merit. I think if you are hiring and you're using like what I call a matrix model or, you know, having a group of people that are there, it's easier to focus on merit than it is where bias comes into play. And when you have that, then if that person is the best candidate, male or female, no matter what gender, then 
that's great. That's who should get the job. I think what happens sometimes is we don't see that as much because there's, there's so much pushback. We don't have, you know, you don't see the role models as many. You know, there's something called the, the, you know, the glass, you know, the, the cliff. So just to give you some stats, the number of CEO of Fortune 500 women are now just past 10%. In 1999, when my, my son was born, the one we're talking about, you know, that was 2%. So it's taken a quarter of a century and we're at 10 and that's just gone up. The number of black CEOs, four. That's it. So, and that number has not changed in the last couple of years. And in total, since 1999, there've only been 17 black CEOs. So we know there's talent. We know there's education. We know there's people that can do it. It's just sometimes our bias comes into play when we're doing promotion. And so if you focus on merit, I think, you know, ideally, you know, if you're also aware of our biases, you're going to get the best person regardless of gender. Yeah. I think that's a fabulous answer. And by the way, I'm not talking about gender pay. That should have been addressed. Years ago. But can I tell you, and, and the advice I would give to both males and females, young ones, is, you know, you were talking about the mental health piece earlier. And it's really important, I think, for people to limit their social media. These young people are growing up with a sense of a reality that isn't really real. It's a bit distorted. The other thing I think it's important for them to develop what I'm going to call a personal advisory board. So I have one. I don't know if you have one, but these are what I call, you know, they're not my best friends, uh, but they are people who are friends who give me advice on career shifts, on things that I want to do. And they are, you know, no holds barred, right? So yeah, Georgia, that's a great career move. Or is that really going to hold you back? Is that going to limit you? Is this really what you want to be doing? Then you need to develop a plan. So, you know, even with my own children, I say, do you have a plan? What does that look like? I have a plan. Where do I want to go? What does that look like? What's the work back? What introductions do I need to have? What things do I need to work on myself so I can level up to go to that place of, you know, importance? I want to focus on impact. So what does that look like for me? So every individual, whether you're 18, 30, or 50, it doesn't matter. You know, how are you making an impact? What do you want your legacy to be? So sometimes I say that to CEOs, what do you want your legacy to be? And, you know, they're a bit stunned, but is it shareholder, you know, approval? And, and Or do you want that story to be much more? Like, think about the stories that you tell about yourself and your career. And that is going to find you your true purpose. You talk an awful lot about safe spaces. When you're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's that, that, and the ability to, when I do training, for people to ask me anything. So, you know, when I go in and do training, for, for example, for diversity, equity, inclusion, people are always hesitant, like when I talk about race and racism or microaggressions. I create a space where people can ask me those questions, but how do we navigate those, right? So when I ask people to talk about race and racism, you know, it's uncomfortable. It makes me sad. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong things. And so my answer is, that's okay, because we're all on this learning curve of how do we become better? How do we do this better? And if we don't have the conversations, we're not going to get to where we want to go. Really? So if you have privilege, what should we do with it? So, you know, I'm going to say privilege has different levels to it that I think we just need to understand. What I do encourage people is if you do have a place of privilege and you, you can see it, then use it to educate, to kind of lean into it, to kind of provide opportunities for those that have a little bit less than you. It's Chatter That Matters. When we return, I asked Georgette to dive deeper in her book, Why Not You? And then Andrea Barrack, she's a Senior Vice President, Corporate Citizenship and ESG at RBC, talks about what their organization's doing to give everybody a seat at the table. It's Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. I asked Canadians about their money matters. We talked debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. 
It's a site where you gain financial knowledge. You learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC. Be kind and be helpful because that generosity can multiply in so many ways. If you can help open a door, make a phone call, support a person, just do it. It feels so darn good. You have no idea. And it's so important to pay it forward. There will always be chaos in all our lives. Among all of the chaos that is in our life, it's important to think about the clarity. There will always be clarity in being the best version of you. So why not you? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Today, my special guest is Dr. Georgette Zanatti. She's a TED speaker, contributor to Forbes magazine, author, and someone who has really spent her career helping to level the playing field to ensure that everybody has a seat at the table. You're a wonderful writer. I've read so many of your Forbes, but I love this book, Why Not You?, which actually includes some of your Forbes articles. And talk to me about this concept of the power of one and how an individual can have such a profound and positive impact on teams. I often will hear people say, well, what can I do? I can't, it's just like, I'm just one lonely person, right? I'm like a drop in the bucket. I'm the, you know, the, you know, the cog in the wheel. But I always, but I say to people, is that what you think? Because do you have any idea the impact you could have on somebody else? So, you know, I, I share the story of, you know, myself and, you know, Melissa and some of the things in terms of just making an introduction. But that, that's not the only time in my life where things have, have changed, where people have helped me. I've helped other people. So, you know, I, I cannot tell you, I have like a stack of cards in, at home in my office. And, and part of the reason for that is when people say, you've changed my life. You've done this. You've done that. And it, sometimes it's a coaching call. Sometimes it's making an introduction. Sometimes it's just listening and letting people see what I see and I can see their faces changing and or asking them a question where they're like, Oh, I never thought of it this way. And I'm like, yeah, do you see what I, do you see where you can go with this? Like, I can, can you imagine? And that one, one interaction is going to impact that person more than you can imagine. And so it's, you know, we sometimes think of them as acts of kindness, but they can be so much more. And that begins with how we lead in the workplace. It doesn't matter what position you hold. That ripple effect will change the organization culture in many ways and set the tone. You know, I'm a huge fan of the hero's journey that we fall in love with the story of the protagonist who's just somebody we relate to. It's an average person. Suddenly there's a knock on the door calling. I mean, why would Frodo Baggins leave the Shire, you know? And they go on this quest. And along the way, they have to overcome horrific circumstances and enemies. But along the way, they meet their mentors, their Yodas, their fairy godmothers, who help them get to where they want and deserve to go. And I actually use that format for my podcast, Chatter That Matters. It's the hero's journey. We started off with this young girl in Tel Aviv many years ago and this nerd that gets three degrees and now you're out and you're spending your time helping others. So so what you're saying is is music and it's magic to my ears. The problem is that as power consumes, it often corrupts and people go from being I'm here to serve you. I'm here to be the Yoda. If I can help you with your dreams, that's a good day's work, to what can you do for me? And I see that corrode society, democracy, politics, social media. It's corrosive 
And in many ways, the middle ground where much of your conversations happen, where you met strangers that helped, has become a moat. And people are just sort of with like-minded people, listening to like-minded content, getting like-minded validation, and becoming incredibly close-minded. So how do you foster that beauty and magic of just the helping hand, the hand up, helping somebody with a contact? How do you foster that in society? So I, I like to think we lead by example. And so when I created Women Helping Empower Women, that was really what I, there's a lot of reasons for it, but that was one of the things that I wanted to do was how do I help other people? And so it's interesting because I can tell you, I've helped very, very senior, like Canadian global leaders. And, I, you know, you'd meet with them and I'd say, let me make a call. You know, you're transitioning into a different role. Maybe I can be of assistance. And it was sort of like, you don't want anything back. I went, no. But what I do ask for people when I do help them out is this. When I open a door and you are flying through, my one ask is that you do that for the next person and the next person. You got to pay it forward. And if you do that, our world will be a better place. My one ask is that you help the next person and the next person and do the exact same thing and ask them to do what I've done for you. That's it. And that will create, you know, you talk of a circular economy, that will create a, a, you know, a virtuous circle of goodness. Down the street, there's a girl called Denise. And I've known Denise for years. And she's uh, she lives with Sharon. And I said, Denise, one day, how's your animation business going? She did animation, by the way, for major studios. She says, I haven't had work in six months. AI took it all away. We are going to deal with epic change where it's quite possible the majority of jobs that we know today will be eliminated. The only constant in our life is change. And so the question is, how do we kind of step back a little bit and think about what skills do we actually have? If this is coming in and doing things more efficiently and people want that, where can I provide added value? What could I do things that are a little bit different? What's my unique value proposition that makes me stand out? And then how do I lean into that? And that's the hard part. That's where the reflection comes in. That's where what am I passionate about comes in. That's where my network piece comes in. Where can you apply what you have in spaces that nobody is seeing? And, you know, I'll tell you what, you know, what I often say to companies too is, you know, they'll often say, well, this is where we're going. This is a strategic plan. Okay, good. But what are you not thinking about? And they, I get like the tear in the head, I think, but what are you not thinking about? What is it that makes me feel really good? Where do I think I have skill sets? Where do I think there's talent? Where is it that maybe AI is doing some stuff, but there's stuff that I, AI can't do that I can only do, only a human being can still do. And how do I create purpose in that and opportunity in that? I agree with all of that, but I'm going to ask you a really tough question. You are one of the most thoughtful, warm, empathetic. I can see how why you've got a stack of cards in your desk for helping people. Do you think you'll ever be replaced by AI? Let me finish. Do you think an AI will come in and be able to immediately understand how somebody thinks, feels, and acts based on all the data points they've given and understand that this person reacts to a certain voice, a certain headline, a certain way of talking, a certain speed of talk? certain volume of talk, and that you're going to have a virtual coach that's going to be there that knows you intimately. Do you think we're going to get to that point where we are going to cheat on human emotion or am I, are, are we safe to say it's just going to be on transactional work? So that's a great question. I thought it was funny that you knew I was about to jump in because my brain was functioning. You could see the wheels spinning, right? I could hear them spinning. <laughs> I'm going to have to edit out those gears because they're flying. <laughs> so, you know... I think the one thing that AI cannot do, and maybe I'm wrong, is the human connection piece. 
So what it can do is enable certain things. It can enable sort of a certain level of connectivity, but that deep in your soul connection. And what I mean by that is when I'm coaching somebody, um, you know, and sometimes it'll just be, I'll, I'll see a, a face change just slightly, just a slight. And I think, okay, I'm going to pause there. I just noticed you. I'll say something, your face just changed. And I'm going, oh, no. Yeah. So what was it about what we just said? So let's dig a little bit deeper. And so I think AI can predict a lot of stuff. Uh, is it going to be able to predict that connection that you and I might have where your face might change a little bit? And I think, okay, something just happened with a comment I just made and I need to kind of drill into that. Is it going to be able to pivot and be able to drill into it differently? I'm not sure. But in elderly care, they're already using AI now. I mean, Dave Usher, a Canadian, brilliant, brilliant uh, thinker, is developing uh, because his mom had dementia and there wasn't enough people to care for her. There wasn't people looking to see if she smiled a certain way. Georgia, you might think the rest of the world has this intuitive sense of human beings, but there's a lot of people that really don't get into the, the nuances the way you do. And he's saying this might be the answer for loneliness, to have somebody that can have a conversation with you, you know, dementia, you might revert back to your original language. You know, you might suddenly, uh, I'm only going to be able to speak Yiddish. And next thing you know, the machine can have conversations with you. Again, I'm not trying to portray this as the end of the world. What I'm fascinated about is what we'll do to find purpose and pursuit, because my belief is at work, whether we, there's times we don't want to do the commute, it gives us a reason for being. It gives us a place to go, a place to belong. And I'm not sure that most people are going to fill free time with a renaissance of creativity because my, again, dire thinking when it comes to this is that a lot of places where there's a lot of unemployment, especially youth employment, that's where people get radicalized. That's where people join gangs. That's where they try to find purpose in other places. So I'm just curious. Yeah, so it's interesting. So I'm actually in the process of changing jobs and, and becoming a chief of staff at a innovation tech uh, company that is really doing great work. Um, what's interesting about them is, you know, they're leveraging all sorts of technology and they talk a lot about connection. I will say that, you know, just in the example that you gave, and as I'm thinking about it and thinking about, well, like, if that was my dad, yeah, yeah, maybe that, that thing would, you know, the AI would speak to him. But that deep, deep level of connection that I'm talking about, I don't think can be replaced where you have shared histories, shared past, shared, that's not going, I, it's hard for me to imagine that that's going to be replaced, right? So, because unless that person knows all of me, all of my history, all of that memory, how, how does, how can an AI replace that? And so there's going to be certain levels of connection for sure. I think there's going to be certain levels of making things a little bit easier, like the dementia example that you used. I can totally see that. But that person, I mean, but if that was my, say my dad or my mom, I still would want to come see them, even if they'd forgotten who I was. Right? Of course you would. And I'm not saying that that's going to be replaced, but 18% of youth that are very involved in video games prefer their world in the virtual world than they do in a real life because they have a sense of conquest and competitiveness and there's a leaderboard and they, they could still feel that they're validated in that world. I want the best for humanity and humans. I just don't have a lot of faith when a handful of people can control something as powerful as AI, that they're all going to act in the interest of the people versus the interest of profit. Yeah. So I don't disagree with that, but your example of, you know, these kids on these, you know, virtual 
because it's just, it's a game. I think they're living very insular, like my own children, um, you know, in my, when my, my kids were in school, I mean, everything is a calculator. I'm like, no, yeah, I took the calculator away. You need to use your brain. I'm like, no, we're only allowed to use calculators. I'm like, how are you going to figure out how to do math? I was helping my daughter years ago, years ago, you know, doing division. And the teacher sent it back and said, this, this is wrong. And I went, but the answer is right. And she said, yeah, but the method you use isn't the method that we teach. I said, it's irrelevant what method. As, as long as she understands it and it gets you the right answer, she's like, no, you can't do this. There's no critical thinking. And so I do think that our youth today, because they're so protected in many ways, live a very insular life and they have this work that, that is not, I don't think we're really training them for where we need to go as an economy, as a country. And I, that's actually what concerns me and keeps me more up at night, to be honest with you. I just don't think the systems are there and we're not building it. You know, Simon Sinek talks about everybody, you know, getting a, you know, a medal for participation. And so, yeah, that's really nice. But when you go to work, that's not how it always works now, does it? So we've got to figure out how to really get them thinking a little differently. What happens when you're at the top of your game? Let's say you're an artist or, a, you know, an executive and you get put out to pasture. Maybe your fans no longer interested in your art or you find yourself outsourced or downsized or whatever terminology. How do you recover from that? How you identify and how you see yourself and your sense of self is so important because that is going to allow you to bounce back, you know, pivot your career, retool, take yourself to a whole other level. But if you tie your identity to a thing in time, then that is going to hold you back in terms of where you're going to go in the future. So I think, you know, being really kind of honest with yourself about what defines me, what defines Tony, what defines Georgette in terms of who they are. Was it just your marketing career? No, you know, your, your career was fantastic, but you know what? It's your brain. It's your ability to think outside the box. It's your creativity that makes you who you are. And that's irrelevant of whether you're the CEO of a company or whether you're doing a podcast or whether you're whatever it is that you are. Those things don't change. And so when you see yourself in those terms, you actually are able to kind of rethink who you are, open up new opportunities for yourself. That's where the reinvention continues to happen. And that's where that level of bouncing back is able, is able to happen much quicker couple of final questions. Your parents still with you? Yes. And do they have any sense of what you do for a living? They sort of know I do like training and public speaking, but I don't know that they, if you actually, if they were to kind of explain it, I'm not sure. What I can tell you though is uh, a funny story is my mom was sitting with friends once, um, this was years ago, and they were saying, and I was still working at the university, and they were, they were saying, oh, you know, there's this young woman, you know, um, she helps all these people, blah, 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 and she looks at this faculty. My mom was like, oh, I wonder if my daughter knows her, because she looks at this faculty, too. And they said, oh, she's been so helpful to so-and-so, and she, my mom said, oh, really, what's her name? And they said, Georgia, and she went, oh, my God, that's my daughter. So she called me later and then I was like, oh, that's nice. That's nice. So you mentioned earlier that you're always set these sort of one or two year plans for yourself. You're, you're changing jobs. You're going into the private sector, I guess, and, and very entrepreneurial. So what's two years from now when I bring you back on the podcast? What is Georgette accomplished and what are you going to feel most proud about? I mean, look, I'm always really proud of my kids because I feel like, you know, if we did one thing right in our relationship, we did a great job with them. They're good human beings and and they make me incredibly proud every day. Work-wise, I think if, you know, in this new company I'm moving into, the CEO is brilliant. And I think there's a ton of opportunities. What I'd like to do is help him go to a whole other level. And I think we can absolutely do that. I think, you know, helping, um, you know, crystallize the leadership, figuring out opportunities, you know, being able to rethink some of the 
some of the thinking a little bit. So, you know, in two, in two years, I'd like to feel like I put the company at steady state to some degree with, with the CEO and the team. You know, I'd like to be uh, doing more in the innovation space. I'd like women helping empower women to be much bigger and much more, you know, impactful, continue to do the work, maybe be, be a bit more global. We have some footprints globally, but I'd like it to be a lot more than that. Uh, and I'd like to be able to say that I have lifted a ton more women and people that need help along the way and not one or two, but many. Many. Do you think there'll be a time in your life where you're going to be able to change it to humans, empowering humans? We're all in it together? Or do you think that's something that's so far out? That would be amazing. But I am going to tell you the gender gap has increased after COVID to 135 years, you know, around the world, according to the World Economic Forum. So this is why I kind of focus a bit more on the women piece. And you have daughters. So I think they're lucky when they have a dad who's a champion for them. But, you know, there are a lot of women that don't have those champions. But I will also say to you that my biggest champions in my career were not the women. That's another reason I created Women Helping Empower Women. It was men. Men were amazing. Men were the ones that were my champions. They gave me opportunities every single time to fly and to grow. It was not the women. The women were doing the pulling down. And so... For me, when I left, you know, my, my, you know, I decided to kind of, kind of do my own thing, do the consultancy piece, develop women helping empowerment. I said, I am going to change the game. I want to do this differently. And I want to remind everyone that the only way we can do that is if we do it together and help. And so, you know, our organization also has men. We don't exclude men. You know, Tony, there was a, an opportunity that came my way. Oh my gosh, two, three years ago. And I thought it was like the perfect opportunity for me until the headhunter said, no, this organization won't allow men on their boards. I went, what do you mean? Like they're trying to raise money to support women. And she said, absolutely not. Don't even bring that up. You won't get the job. And I went, then I, I don't want to proceed. I said, if we're going to take out half the, you know, half the population and, and if we're going to take out champions, right, they're not just placeholders. These are men who are going to be champions then I don't think this aligns with my values. And I actually pulled out of the running. I thought this is not going to be for me. I wish there was a role in our government of the champion of champions. And I would, would love you to take it because I think you're just really extraordinary. I always leave with the three things and I two of them really are one and the same, but they're so important. Your skills don't have an expiry date. I think that is so powerful that if people at any age develop those skills, if you're a parent, a mentor, if you're someone that encourages people so that they can turn on a light switch and say, I have those skills because there isn't an expiry date. And that's what's going to give you the ability to stay in step, embrace in step with how this world's changing. I love the sense of sense of self, sense of purpose and self sense of confidence is what gives you the ability to have resilience. I think that is, I'm going to say that is sense of self. You know, who are you? Why do you matter? Purpose. What, where are you heading in life that intellectually and, and emotionally reward you? What gives you that sense of confidence that you can keep going forward no matter how many times people try to pull you back is what resilience is. So it's probably the best definition. So I, I just thank you for that. And I guess the third one is just a very simple tactic, but sometimes I overlook the tactics and I get so caught up in the emotion, but the sense of personal advisory board, they're not your best friend. They're not the person that's going to always say you look great in those Jordache jeans that have your interests at heart and give you an honest point of view. And I think that's just an incredible piece of advice. I mean, Dr. Georgette Zanetti, I'm just so happy you came on Chatter That Matters. Well, I'm, I'm so happy that you had me. And I just want to thank you for all you do and for actually creating a platform 
that, you know, I said to you at the beginning, that's actually educational, that's thought-provoking, that gets us thinking a little bit about what it is that we want to do. And I am so grateful for all the work that you do in changing the conversation, changing the dialogue, and getting us to think more strategically as a nation about our future, our future of work, right? Our young people and the direction that we're going. Because if we want to be competitive in the innovation economy, all the things that you talk about are absolutely critical. So thank you for that. Joining me now is Andrea Barrett. She's a Senior Vice President of Corporate Citizenship and ESG at RBC. Andrea, welcome back to A Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony. So happy to be here. Andrea, I follow you on LinkedIn, and one of your recent posts began with this statement. In turbulent times, demonstrating corporate purpose has never been more critical. Investors, clients, employees, and other stakeholders are increasing their expectations that companies have a net positive impact on the world around them, on issues that are relevant to their business and where they can make a difference. And then you went on to talk about something that you were part of creating the RBC Purpose Framework, Powering Ideas for People on the Planet. Can you connect those two, which is this sense of tension that's happening in society and and almost, and I'd say sometimes in desperation saying, who's going to take a stand on our behalf and how you feel this purpose is addressing some of the concerns that those many stakeholders have? So I do think we're in this time where we have evolving um, expectations that the general public and that customers and employees have on corporations. And actually, that's a good thing, you know, when... If you sort of have followed the Edelman Trust Barometer that they do every year, what they've shown is, is unfortunately, trust in governments and public institutions has been waning, uh, which isn't great. But at the same time, actually, trust in corporations, uh, in some cases, has actually been either stable or, or on the increase. And so I do think it's sort of this sense about people are looking to big companies in particular, but I would say all all companies, to play a positive role in the communities that they're in, that they be good employers, that they treat their customers fairly, and that they have a positive influence in the world around them. And so at RBC, we wanted to kind of have a shortcut way to explain to all of our stakeholders how we view the world, right? What are the challenges that we see are out there that uh, not only affect our business, now and in the future, but in fact, that we can have a positive influence on as well. You know, at RBC, we looked at three three things we narrowed down on. You know, we have a heightening environmental crisis. We have a rapidly changing workforce because of AI and automation and migration. And we have uh, increasing inequalities in our society. What is then our North Star? So we thought we want to lead, um, sort of accelerate the transition to a greener economy. We want to be able to invest in skills that we need for this thriving future. And we want to drive more equitable prosperity in our communities. This week, I had Dr. Georgette Zanati on, and she's really talking about championing the marginalized communities and women. And I pushed back. So how does that work for the people you're champion, but the people that might be left behind? And she was so phenomenal, like you are, in explaining the sense that we have fallen so far back, especially since COVID, that, you know, this gap that we were hoping that we're going to close is widening. Yeah, so I think we look at it a few different ways, right? We would start with saying, who are the most vulnerable in our society? That, that we really need to kind of double down on helping to make sure they have that equal opportunity and, and get the help that they need. But we also need to help the masses. You know, we have a hollowing out middle class 
You know, we've got folks that are hanging on by their fingernails to try to pay their mortgage every month and to try to put food on the table. And they are the teachers and the nurses in our society, right? They used to be strong, solidly middle-class jobs. And so we need to be able to sort of figure out what are sort of solutions for those folks. And part of that is thinking about the influence we have as a large company. And can we do public policy advocacy and research and and insights and learn about what kinds of things are needed and use our voice uh, as Canada's largest corporation to be able to try to, to influence on some of those things as well. So I think it's both, you know, things that we do on the ground and then things at the systems change level. And we need, you know, all of those things to be able to, to make a difference. And then we've decided what contributions can we make to try to solve these problems. And we use the word contributions deliberately because no one actor, whether it be a company or an institution, caused those problems. So there's no one person or government or company that's responsible for solving them, but we all do need to contribute and really understand what's the part we can play. And so for us, it's like, do we have a role to play in the kinds of products and services and financial advice we give to our customers, making sure they're not taking on too much debt. We can make sure our employees actually have good jobs with benefits and, and insurance and, and you know do their own financial education as they make good choices. And then they can tell their friends, neighbors, and kids about how to do that as well. Um, and then there's the community work that we do, right? So really helping to ensure that young people get the start that they need and have the skills that they need to be able to get those good jobs of the future. We We have in Canada a huge commitment on immigration, but companies like RBC can help those newcomers to integrate. Do you think a lot of this great work that's being done by organizations is because government has become less effective? What we're starting to see is that government alone is not going to solve the complex challenges that we have in society. Really, it's going to take a, you know, mix of, you know, and I, I've worked in the public sector and the private sector and the not-for-profit sector. They all have a unique role to play, but they need to be able to do it better together. Here, we're a bank, but, you know, we actually, you know, um, at RBC, we partner with a lot of community-based organizations because they're on the ground and they're experts in what actually needs to happen. But we can provide the capital and some of our, you know, volunteers and human resources to do that. But, you know, we're not going to do that. Other things, you know, I would say housing is a great example. You know, affordable housing is is like we do need government intervention in that. But it's sort of like if we can try to figure out how do we convene all of the folks that are needing to be involved. I really appreciate you joining me in Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony. Great to be here. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening, and let's chat soon.